You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. From here and now on WBUR Podcasts, it's The Great Wager. I'm Scott Tong. This is chapter four in our story about Richard Nixon's top secret plan to go to China, befriend China, and change the balance of power in the Cold War. So first of all, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes, you know what to do. Go back and listen to those. Okay, onward. When we last left you, Nixon finally gets to China in February 1972. He meets Mao, starts to open up U.S.-China relations, and figures, bam, that's my legacy. Until, as you probably know by now, seven persons were indicted today for trying to cover up the Watergate scandal. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. And yet U.S.-China relations continue on. Our host, Jane Perlez of The New York Times, tells you about super-secret intelligence collaboration between Beijing and Washington, including a meeting at the CIA that has never been reported before. First, though, let's spin back to Nixon and his top aide Henry Kissinger in China 50 years ago. Jane, over to you. It's the second day of Nixon's visit to China in February 1972, and Kissinger's having a really serious meeting with a Chinese general, General Ye Jianying. He's having this meeting to tell him all the Soviet weapons that are arrayed against China. And this is top-secret information from the CIA. Nixon's taking the morning off, so it's just Kissinger telling the general, hey, guess what? We've got all this secret weapon information for you about our common enemy, the Soviets. No one but Nixon and the people in the room know what Kissinger's doing. This is just part of what Kissinger says. The Russians have three different types of bombers, 72 in the Transbaikal, 30 in Central Asia. The total number of aircraft facing the Chinese is 1,400. The total number of personnel, 211 helicopters in the Far East, 272 to 284 of a specific type of naval missile, which has a range of 300 nautical miles. You get the idea. Ye is like a kid in a candy shop. He can't believe all that he's getting. And this is just a taste of bigger things to come between the CIA and China. I'm Jane Perlez, and this is The Great Wager, how Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger made friends with China 50 years ago, and how it's all falling apart. In the first three parts of this series, We've looked at how Kissinger and Nixon worked with the Chinese to enact a daring plan to unite two very different countries, a capitalist democracy, the United States, and a communist dictatorship, China. Today, I'm going to tell you about a super-secret intelligence collaboration between the U.S. and China, and what it tells us about the fast-changing nature of the relationship between the two countries. It includes a backstairs meeting at the CIA, one that has never been reported before. In the years following Nixon's big trip, both countries have substantial changes in leadership. In 1974, Nixon leaves the White House in disgrace. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Two years later, Mao dies, a huge event on the world stage. 
Mao Zedong, the most powerful influence on China since Confucius, has died at the age of 82. Through all of this upheaval, China and the United States' common enemy stays the same, the Soviet Union. The new leader of China is Deng Xiaoping. He's very different from Mao. He's more open to change at home, and abroad he's even more anti-Soviet, which suits the United States. By now, the Soviets have almost as many nuclear weapons as the Americans. And the United States needs to know if the Soviet Union is abiding by arms control agreements. What if the Russians cheat? Suppose they build bigger and better weapons than allowed by Saul. Would the United States find out? By now, Jimmy Carter is president. And he also doesn't want the Soviets to have more nuclear weapons than the United States. We pledge perseverance and wisdom in our efforts to limit the world's armaments to those necessary for each nation's own domestic safety. One of the best places on Earth to spy on the Soviets is high on the mountains of Western China, not far from the Soviet border, and close to an important Soviet test site. But there's a catch. Even though Nixon's trip was so successful, the Americans still haven't established formal diplomatic relations with China, and China isn't willing to collaborate on this critical intelligence until they do. The two countries tentatively agree to joint spy stations. They will be run by the CIA on the American side and by the intelligence arm of the Chinese military. Finally... The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. Three weeks later, Deng comes to Washington to celebrate. It's the first time a communist Chinese leader has ever been to the United States. He's welcomed warmly at the Kennedy Center and the White House. And Vice Premier Deng, on behalf of all Americans, I welcome you here to our house. But before the new Chinese leader leaves the capital, he makes one more stop. A very secret one. And one that's never been reported before. Deng asks to visit the CIA headquarters in Virginia. That's a big request for a man representing a country that the United States didn't even officially recognize until a few weeks previously. Few foreign leaders have ever been invited into the inner sanctum of American intelligence. The American CIA chief in Beijing isn't even told about it, nor are many others you'd expect to know. This fascinated me. Had the leader of China really been welcomed by the CIA? And why was it such a secret? It took quite a bit of reporting and research to confirm the visit. When I interviewed former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, he confirmed it. Tersely, Deng had made this very unusual visit after Langley. Yes. Here's what I found out. After Dang asks for the meeting, the CIA works to arrange for a time when no American official will notice what Dang is doing. This is called white time, when Dang is meeting with his own Chinese officials away from the Americans. On Dang's last night in Washington, there's white time. He arrives at headquarters in the dead of night. His limousine slips into the underground garage reserved for the VIPs. Everyone has gone home. CIA headquarters are basically empty. He's whisked into an elevator to the first floor of the command center. 
Intelligence officials let him see maps from American satellites. The maps show the places where the U.S. and China plan to put the spy stations. The Chinese leader then goes to the seventh floor, the inner sanctum. He meets the new director of the CIA, Stansfield Turner. Turner is a reformer. He's completely overhauled the CIA since the days of Nixon. But when it comes to China, he's staying on the path that Nixon set in motion. The Americans are seriously trying to woo the Chinese so they can work together. At this point, the Cold War with the Soviets has been dragging on for decades. The Americans really want China's help in ensuring that the Soviets aren't building a nuclear arsenal that could start a hot war. The meeting with Stansfield-Turner lasts about 45 minutes. This is a turning point in the U.S.-China relationship. Dang and Turner agree that their two countries will build and run spy stations in western China that will spy on the Soviet missile program. The two sides each get important access. The Americans can spy on the Soviets. The Chinese get equipment they have never seen before. But before they supply the Chinese with high-tech gear for the stations, the Americans want one more step to make absolutely sure that the Chinese are coming along. They get confirmation a few months later. The junior senator from Delaware, Joe Biden, is in China with the congressional delegation. It's Biden's China debut. Biden reached out and grabbed Deng's hand and shook it. And uh, I think that Deng was very perplexed, if not horrified. Fox Butterfield is the first New York Times correspondent in China, and he's along for the ride. But Biden grabbed his hand and flashed a big smile and uh, somehow got through. Biden asks Deng whether he'll really build the joint stations. His answer to Biden is enough of a yes that the Americans know the Chinese leader is serious. The stations are a go. The exact details of the project, called Chestnut, remain top secret. Our requests under the Freedom of Information Act to the CIA and the State Department are still unanswered. It seems the CIA is sensitive about having worked so closely with the Chinese. But we've been able to piece enough together to tell you the story. Soon, giant American C-141 aircraft land at Beijing Airport. They're chock full of American equipment for the spy stations. About two dozen American military technicians from the National Security Agency settle into northwest Beijing. They are specialists in decoding signals from Soviet missiles. They will train the Chinese in how to operate the American computers, the transmitters, and the radar. Sensitive antennas are set up in concrete buildings out on the mountains in the Xinjiang region, northwest China. By the end of 1980, CIA Director Stansfield Turner is ready for a big inspection. He's joined by an entourage of aides that includes an up-and-comer named Robert Gates, a Soviet expert at the CIA. Gates, of course, will later become the head of the CIA himself, and after that, Secretary of Defense. My role on the, on the trip was to brief the Chinese side on what the Soviets were doing militarily and politically. My whole presence there, in a way, symbolized the anti-Soviet uh, nature of the entire arrangement. Turner flies to Beijing via Japan. It's almost as big a deal as Nixon's trip. But this time, no TV crews. It's all secret. 
Turner had grown a mustache for this trip and wore a sort of a Polish worker's cap. So we tried not to be too obvious, but in some ways I think that made us all the more obvious. Think about how significant this is. The CIA has viewed China as the enemy for more than two decades. And now they're sitting down together. To be a CIA officer and, and not feel like we were about to get arrested in the middle of Beijing was, uh, was a, a pinch me moment for sure. Turner meets Deng at a rundown house in the central part of Beijing. The Americans, it turns out, aren't the only ones who want to keep this collaboration secret. Turner's visit sets the ball rolling for a decade or so of a successful intelligence partnership. Americans and Chinese work together at these spy stations, something that's almost unthinkable now. I spoke to an American CIA technician who visited the stations from time to time, and he gave us a picture of what they're like. To get to the spy stations, the American technicians fly to Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang province. They then board a tiny plane to a little airport near the Soviet border. Their trip isn't over yet. There's a drive on a bumpy country road before they finally reach the remote spy stations. It's mountainous and desert. The Americans almost always go in pairs in part because the stations are really so isolated. The CIA worries about their mental health if they go alone. They are dreary concrete places, lots of beer. The Chinese like American spam. There's a shortwave radio for entertainment. The Chinese are curious about the Americans, but really only when they are off duty and when they're away from their political commissars. They are so close to the testing sites, they can see the lights from the Soviet missiles a reminder of their common enemy, and their bond. In some ways, this is what Nixon always wanted, a relationship that disadvantages the Soviets and solidifies America's upper hand in the Cold War. His wager has paid off. The countries are friends, and the United States is reaping the intelligence benefits. But what happens after their shared rival, the Soviet Union, disappears? The Great Wager is brought to you by Here and Now and WBUR Podcasts. Our series was reported and narrated by me, Jane Perlez, and produced by Grace Tatter. Editorial direction from Scott Tong and Jeb Sharp. Sound design by Paul Vikas and engineered by Mike Moschetto. Our executive producer is Ben Brock Johnson. (laughs) 